Welcome to Practice Makes, the Oxford Reimagining Performance Podcast, where we put leading scholars in conversation with actors, directors, and other practitioners to crack open the connections between theater research and performance in practice. I'm Madeline Seidenberg. And I'm Helen Dallas, and we're PhD students at Oxford. We've worked in theater as directors and dramaturgs. And now we also ask academic questions about theater. Before we start this episode, which features Colin Blumenau and Dr. David Taylor discussing performing 18th century drama today, David reads a speech delivered by the character of Millwood in George Lillo's 1731 play, The London Merchant, to introduce this episode. On the surface, this is an 18th century morality play in which the protagonist, a merchant's apprentice called George Barnwell, is seduced by a sex worker called Millwood into a life of crime, which culminates in him murdering his uncle. At the end of the play, the penitent George Barnwell and the determinedly unrepentant Millwood are both sent to the gallows. We know that masters took their apprentices to see the London merchant to instruct them on how not to behave. But Millwood as a character challenges such a straightforward moralistic understanding. Here's David Taylor reading her speech from just after she is apprehended. What are your laws? of which you make your boast, but the fool's wisdom and the coward's valour, the instrument and screen of all your villainies, by which you punish in others what you act yourselves or would have acted had you been in their circumstances. The judge who condemns the poor man for being a thief had been a thief himself had he been poor. Thus you go on deceiving, and being deceived, harassing and plaguing and destroying one another. But women are your universal prey. With that emphatic introduction to today's episode, here are our speakers. Colin is the artistic director of the Production Exchange, as well as a prolific writer and director. You may recognise his voice from his six-year stint as Francis Taffy Edwards in The Bill. From 1996 to 2012, Colin was Chief Executive and Artistic Director of the Theatre Royal Bury St Edmunds, which is the last working Regency Playhouse in England. Under Colin's leadership, the theatre was restored to its original state, as it was when it was built in 1819, and Colin led the Restoring the Repertoire initiative, which brought forgotten Georgian plays back onto the stage. And David is an Associate Professor at St. Hugh's College, Oxford, specialising in the theatre of the long 18th century. He has written widely on drama and theatrical culture in this period, including Theatres of Opposition, Empire Revolution, and Richard Brinsley Sheridan. And he co-edited the Oxford Handbook of Georgian Theatre, 1737 to 1832. David is also a member of the R18 Collective, a group of international scholars who work to, quote, reactivate restoration in 18th century theatre for the 21st century. He also works on Shakespeare and cartoons, and he has recently developed a prototype smartphone app with Arcade, which recreates in virtual reality the stage of the 1785 pantomime, Oh My, or the trip around the world. And he is also, as we can both say from personal experience, a fantastic PhD supervisor. Um, In addition to many other things that we'll talk about today, welcome both. Thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, thank you for speaking to us. Lovely to welcome you. 
we had the pleasure of getting to know, to work with both of you together on um, a workshop recently of who's the dupe. Um, but we were wondering if you could chat with us a little bit about your relationship and how the two of you know each other and how you've worked with one another. Oh, goodness. Um, we were introduced. I can't remember how David I, will remember because he's I, got a much better memory than I have. Well, I don't know. I can remember. I mean, for, so uh, I was a PhD student at Cambridge during so the, the period after the City of Royal at Edmonds reopened following its restoration. So during that amazing, such incredibly exciting period in which Colin was leading this restoring the repertoire project. And I, uh, in 2007, certainly saw some of the, actually, I didn't see Black Eyed Susan, Colin, the, the, the very, your, your very first production, but the, I think thereafter I saw pretty much everything because, you know, Barry St. Edmunds is a, a not particularly long train ride from, from Cambridge. Uh, so I think we became introduced that way. And then once I finished my PhD, in 2009, so 2009 to 10, uh, I worked with Colin um, across that year, especially in the early first first half of 2010, um, uh, more directly on the Restoring the Repertoire project, sitting in the rehearsal room, you know, helping with some of the rehearsed readings as well. Uh, so it, that, that's really how it it, it took shape for, for someone who was first a PhD student and then uh, I know early, an early career researcher. It was just a gift from heaven, quite frankly, in, in ways that I appreciated at the time, but that now more than a decade on, I really think, wow, just how unbelievably lucky was I. It was a moment in time, wasn't it? It really was a moment in yeah. time. And, uh, the thing I remember about that time was that uh, it was very much uh, riding by the seat of one's pants because uh, there was no received wisdom about any of this stuff. And we had to create not just kind of plays out of written pieces of uh, writing, uh, but we also had to kind of create an idiom that worked and because it was um, un unresearched and untested in the practical field, having somebody like David along for the ride was absolutely invaluable because there was a source of, a source of knowledge and scholarship that um, was, was, I was like manna from heaven, really, because, because we knew nothing and there was I grandly making all these claims for Georgian drama. And I think we even were presumptuous enough to say we were going to do for Georgian drama what the, the Globe did for Elizabethan on the basis of no knowledge whatsoever. Uh, and uh, having David there was fantastic because he knew stuff and he knew stuff both in terms of the work, but also in terms of the context, the society, the politics, the people. Uh, which I, as a as a as a theatre practitioner, knew nothing about. But what what was interesting is, and what continues to be interesting when I am involved in seeing these plays put on their feet, is that the knowledge is in the plays themselves. In other words, that 
that the repertoire is a kind of embodied re reservoir of knowledge and that you know i could come along or another academic could come along and say well this is what happened in 1786 and this is how you know this should be done or this is how that should be said but within the plays themselves once you try to work out how they move and this is what was so exciting about being in the rehearsal room within the plays is all this knowledge you know this sense of gesture and movement and interaction that is only in those plays and that is only unlocked when we perform those plays. So it, the thing I would add to what Colin has just said is that for me, it was not about kind of imparting my knowledge to Colin or his actors. Rather, it was just a huge um, learning experience for me as well, a wonderful learning experience of the kind that I could not possibly, and I don't think anyone could possibly get elsewhere. So what you've both been saying, this is such a wonderful working relationship to get to hear an insight into, um, is that you both came to 18th century theatre independently. And that is, I mean, as, as Madeline and I both know, as people who also work on this, it is a notoriously under-researched area and even more so an underperformed area. So how did you both come to this area before you ended up finding one another to work on this? Um, well, I, I ran a, a Regency theatre and I mean, <laughs> it seemed to me that uh, there was a gift from heaven. Uh, and when we went to the Heritage Lottery Fund to ask for money to restore the theatre, they said, why? Why do you want money to restore that theatre? Uh, and I said, well, because it's a, a national treasure. And they went, yeah, but what are you going to do in it that may, means that we're going to give you two million pounds? And that was a light bulb moment when I thought I knew that the, the, the history of the theatre was kind of architecturally really, really important. But what it did, nobody had even thought about. Uh, and so what I did know, going right back to my university days, was that I was taught everything from the Greeks up to um, uh, uh, Shakespeare. And then there was an enormous gap apart from the rivals and she stoops to conquer until Victorian theatre. And I always, even as a 20 year old, thought that was very odd. And then that came back to me and, and I went, oh, right, okay, there's all that other stuff. And then you start researching and people say, don't bother because it's rubbish. And for most people, I think that's enough. For me, there was an imperative, which was find a reason for spending two million quid on the building and what's gonna happen in it. So that's how I came to it. Um, and it felt like, um, and still feels like, I have to be honest, uh, pushing a boulder up a hill because people still don't listen. Even though we, we produced, I don't know, 10 plays and read 100 of them, and they were incredibly well received, all of them. Uh, it, it still feels like there's a somebody's got a vice-like grip on 18th century theatre and early 19th century theatre and gone, yeah, uh, you can't get at this because it's rubbish, so we're going to hold on to it. Uh, I know that's fanciful, but it, it does feel like there's a set of obstacles which we haven't yet surmounted uh, that stop there being a public recognition of the value of these plays. And I remember there's a 
there's a director called Jessica Swale, who's now terribly famous, who did um, productions of The Bell Stratagem and something else at, at one, of the, one of the Scent Lever plays, I think, at, Sub, at Southwark Playhouse. And again, the whole world went, oh, these are magnificent. Let's have more. And then it stopped. And there were no more. The National Theatre never does any. The RSC never does any. Uh, and none of the regional centres ever look at 18th century theatre with anything but kind of, um, oh, I don't know, distaste. Uh, in my case, it was, I suppose it probably goes back to an amazing teacher I had at school who taught me English and then uh, at A-level theatre studies, the teacher called Dot M, uh, who... In fact, I dedicated my theatres of opposition to because she was just so profoundly important to, you know, my own development intellectually. And we were lucky. I, so I grew up in um, the West Midlands and we lived quite uh, close to Stratford-upon-Avon. And uh, Mrs M would take us regularly to see things at Stratford and Warwick Arts Centre everywhere. And, and so I, and, and I just developed this deep love of the theatre. But amidst various things we, we saw, um, one of the things that we were taken to was a production, an RSC production of The School for Scandal um, uh, with uh, an amazing cast, actually. A, a young David Tennant was, was in it. Um, I'm, I'm worrying I'm now getting confused because I also, around the same time the RSC did Arrivals, and definitely David Tennant was in that as Captain Jack Absolute. I'm getting confused. I saw a, uh, an RSC Rivals with uh, David Tennant as Jack Absolute, the kind of the male lead in that play. And I saw uh, The School for Scandal with Matthew McFadden as um, Joseph Surface. And that, uh, and we spent some time, uh, you know, talking about comedy. And, and it, it, actually, interestingly, we were taught, the School for Scandals as a restoration play. Um, but that really started my interest. If we could just jump in here, maybe yes. ex explain on, to our please. listeners why it's not a restoration yes. play, David. It's just to explain that so restoration as a term is a term we would usually apply to the theatre from 1660 when the theatres are reopened following a kind of an 18 year period of closure, which spans the civil wars and then the, the interregnum Cromwellian period. Uh, so from 1660 through to roughly the, the beginning of the 18th century, sometimes it's extended to 1714 when Queen Anne dies and George I comes to the throne, but never really any longer. Uh, but restoration comedy seems to be this term which gets applied to comedy of co comedies of manners, as we often call them, of, of, of uh, that date from much later. And Sheridan was uh, was writing in the 1770s. And in fact, one of the mm -hmm. things that got him interested in Sheridan was Sheridan was the fact that he was um, later in his life a buddy, a drinking buddy of Lord Byron's. So, uh, that you know, here is this supposedly restoration playwright, which makes us think of late 17th century theatre. But in fact, there he was at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, running a theatre, as he did Drury Lane Theatre, and um, and drinking with, with Lord Byron. There's a, there's a very, there's a, there's a great anecdote in one of Byron's diaries in which he describes the perils of trying to navigate a very drunk Sheridan who by the end of his life was very very big 
tried to navigate a very drunk, very big Sheridan down a, a corkscrew staircase in the middle of the night after one of their, their, their drinking sessions. So this is, I, I digress. Um, I had this amazing teacher. She took me to some amazing plays, including an 18th century play. And I think that was the beginning of it. And then I was lucky enough to do one of the modules I did when I was an undergraduate at St. Andrews University was in restoration drama. And uh, basically by the time I graduated as an undergraduate, I then knew that I wanted to do graduate work on, on 18th century theatre. And, and that's really where it all started. I think there's a really interesting thing that's, that's happened that makes the distinction between restoration and, and Georgian theatre terribly important because there's a real danger that restoration is going to be uh, obliterated from the map because of the political connotations to do with slavery and the association with the period. Uh, uh, and I don't know if you're aware, but in lots of drama schools at the moment, there is a movement to stop doing restoration plays uh, and the fact that 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 that's happened has a real um, knock-on effect I suppose and implications for for, for the longer period which uh, isn't restoration uh, so there is there is yet another thing that's being added to the the list of impediments or the list of obstacles that exist for this historic work to try and surmount in order to survive. And I, I do have real, not fear, because God, it's only theatre and what does it matter? Uh, but I have a, 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 a concern that some of the, the brilliant plays of the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries are just going to be unacceptable to a modern world uh, mm. through, I think, misplaced criticism. The criticism is absolutely appropriate. Don't get me wrong. It's absolutely right that, that you know, you only have to look at the novels of Jane Austen and go, yeah, all right, they're based on uh, uh, um, practices that we we cannot accept or support nowadays, and therefore they should they should have to answer for that but they shouldn't be expunged from the record mm -hmm. that 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 that's 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 true but there's a real danger that the the restoration period the georgian period but particularly the restoration period is going to be treated differently for no particular reason the historical canvas looks at slavery from the year zero until now uh, and you would be pushed to justify vilifying 30 years of, of English drama as the representative of it. And so to, to kind of get rid of Restoration Theatre or to get rid of Georgian Theatre because that's when slavery first came to public notice, I think is, is not appropriate. I think just to build on what Colin has just said, uh, this is something that as a collective, the R18 collective is, is really interested and engaged with because, you know, thinking about well, where's that critique coming from? Mm -hmm. and I think we can understand it. And it, because where it comes from is in part, is in part a result of how restoration uh, and indeed 18th century theatre has been seen and has been practiced so far as it has been practiced for, for, for decades. Okay. It, it's, uh, you know, tends to elicit highly conservative approaches to staging. Uh, that understandably a lot of people feel excluded from. 
but what I would say is, I'd say two things. The first is there is no, you're not going to find uh, many restoration or 18th century plays that are any more problematic than Othello or The Taming of the Shrew or uh, Merchant of Venice. Okay. Well, the, ho- the whole Shakespeare canon, I went right. to Midsummer Night's Dream the other night. Right. I thought, what? Exactly. So, so that, that what needs to happen, or at least more of which needs to happen, is uh, a kind of critical and interrogative approach mm. to these plays in their staging. You know, mm-hmm. and an experimental approach, a recognition that these plays have absolutely have problematic areas, but those are, are theatrical opportunities for critical practice in the way that they are staged, rather than reasons for pushing them aside and pretending that they don't exist and that they don't belong on the stage. And I, and I think that, if, that, again, going back to the point I made earlier about the fact that this, the repertoire is this kind of reservoir of embodied knowledge, I mean, and that that knowledge uh, with questions of how modern ideas of race come into being, how modern ideas of sexuality and gender come into being, how modern ideas of capital come into being, all of that knowledge is in those plays. Mm-hmm. And I think that that as well as being as well as having as well as there being many brilliant plays, these brilliant plays are also telling us about who we are now and how we came to be who we are now. And I think on that basis that, that there, it's really important that we, we do stage these works and that we find ways to engage uh, young actors uh, and directors um, in the challenges of these plays, in the merits of these plays, and certainly, of course, with, in, in the problems of these plays as well. It's, it's, it's so important, isn't it? And a practical demonstration of that oh gosh this sounds so arrogant was uh, the production that we did of uh, wives as they were and maids as they are which you read and the first three quarters of it is is it, it's setting it up beautifully for a denouement that doesn't happen when you read it uh, uh, all, all the issues, particularly about marriage, about feminism, about the woman's right to self-determination, all exist in the, in the debate that the play throws up in front of you. And then the ending, when you read it, feels like a cop-out, where all the, all the relationships are tied up with pretty little bows and everybody gets married and uh, everybody's happy in the end. So you've, you, you, you've kind of created this maelstrom of ideas but then you haven't carried it through. And it felt, it felt to me when we did that, that the most important thing to do was to try and stay faithful to the, the, the two things, which were the ideas that were thrown up by the play itself and its contemporary resonance, where we've gone beyond that. We've gone beyond tying things up in pretty little bows. And there are, there are real questions to ask about the way society treats women. And 10 years ago, it was less sophisticated than it is now, but it was still pretty sophisticated. And the more I worked on the play and the more I said to the actors, we have to find a way of doing this so that we don't tie everything up with pretty little bows and send people off into the night thinking about what they've seen rather than just going, oh, that was jolly fun, uh, was was, uh, a real challenge for us. And I think what we what we achieved with it was doing exactly that thing that that 
David was saying was using the 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 crucible of knowledge and experience that the uh, the eighteenth century offered us, the early nineteenth century offered us, uh, and then interpreted it for a modern audience, and that felt like a perfectly harmonious thing to do, even though it was tough. I think I'm so pleased that Collins brought up wives as they were and maids as they are, which is an Elizabeth Inchbold play from 1797. Um, in my humble opinion, is possibly the, the, the possibly the greatest play of the 18th century. I, mean, I just think it's an absolutely astonishingly good play. Um, and Collins' production of it in what's 2007 or 2008? 2008, I think it was. Uh, at Barry St. Edmunds was an, a brilliant production of it. And the, the play, uh, I mean, the, the wife in the play of the play's title is tyrannized and indeed tortured by her husband, um, but at the same time is being harassed by this rakish male admirer who is convinced that, you know, really he can help her escape, not, not stopping to consider what she wants. And then the maid, on the other hand, is uh, a fashionable young woman mired in debt, uh, but also being constantly chided by an older man who in fact is her father in disguise and who's constantly kind of assessing her. Uh, and if you like, also mansplaining as well, as we might now say. Uh, and so from these two very, through these two uh, characters in their situations, Inchbold is telling a story about how women are trapped financially and sexually within um, these ideals of, of femininity, which, which were very important to the 18th century, but which certainly uh, haven't entirely gone away. And really what the play is doing is offering this kind of remarkable and radical and highly searching exploration of the ways in which men seek to control women and control women's bodies. And Inchbold is asking, well, how, what, what, what strategies, realistically, what strategies do women have for resisting those uh, systems, those structures of male control? And her answers, as Collins already suggested, really, are surprising and certainly not always uh, as affirmative as, as we as an audience might want. I think, she's, I think Inchbold plays with that, uh, with, with a, with, with, to some extent, with frustrating an audience, with not giving them certainly not giving the modern audience quite what they expect or, or want. It, it's, it's, a, it's such a stunning play. And given what's been happening, for instance, in the States, just this past couple of weeks, it's a play that feels more urgent than ever, I would say. So, um, yeah. That, and the, the really interesting thing about the play is it doesn't give the answers, but it raises all of the questions. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that, 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 that's a product of its time. Maybe she didn't have the answers, but we certainly have the answers now. And so it's up to us to go forward from the end of the play or just before the end of the play and go, all right, we, we can use this. We can, we can enjoy it for what it is, but we can use it politically. We can use it socially to, to humanise our society a bit. I think I'm not sure we do have all the answers I suppose no, I disagree no. with Colin there. But and also, I think that, I mean, for me, wives as they were and mates as they are is as much a problem play, to use that term, as something, again, just to 
kind of turn to more familiar Shakespeare precedent, something like Measure for Measure. Okay, it's an mm-hmm. 18th-century problem play, and and uh, in part you can I think you can feel the way that just as Jane Austen, what Jane Austen does brilliantly is not dispense with the marriage plot, but works within that particular inherited structure of the marriage plot novel to do something different. So Inchbold is working within this inherited structure of comedy in which, as Colin has said, you know, everything needs to be tied up with bows at the end. And yet, just as in some of those Shakespeare problem plays, we feel as an audience the strain of that structure as it tries to make everything knit together in ways that feel awkward and indeed wrong for us now, certainly. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I agree with that completely. I, I would only say that what we what we did at the end of it, rather than tie it up mm. with bows, is just throw it back at the audience yeah. and go, what do you think? So we didn't make any of the decisions. Well, we made two out of the three decisions because the text demanded it. But the central character, Mariah, uh, was was being tasked with tying the final bow with a totally unsuitable man and the the way you read the play uh it feels like the very last act is that she caves in and 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 agrees to marry him but we didn't do that we stopped it before that point there's no dialogue but we stopped it before that point and she just looked out at the audience and went what do you sorry for, for a podcast she shrugged and demanded audience uh, or demanded of the audience to make their own decisions, and that felt that felt like it, going back a bit. That felt exactly the right way to use the material, but to interpret it for a, a modern day. Can I just jump in on that because I find this this whole discussion about time of writing and setting so interesting. And I think I think it's on now as we are recording this. I think the National has a a new version of the rivals on Jack Absolute Flies Again, which is set during the Second World War, I yeah, believe. Yeah, Is that right? Yeah. Thank you, yeah, God. Uh, I was chucking on the talking nonsense. Um, I did. I, I know, David, this is something that we've spoken about briefly before, but I, I wondered about thoughts about sort of setting these plays within their historical era or kind of untethering them from that and what you think that does, what creative and the sort of discursive interrogative model what it opens up for that as well yeah I mean this was this was a a central point of discussion when we were doing it is to what extent do we want to do museum theatre zero and to what extent do we want to make it relevant to a contemporary society a hundred percent and so naturally from the point where you make that decision, uh, you can explore any idiom that you want uh, in order to get to get the play to its audience. And uh, we did, you know, there, there are a number of productions that didn't follow convention. And in fact, I think there was only one that we did, which was entirely conventional. And that's because we wanted to demonstrate the way that the scenery worked more than anything else. And we wanted to show off the beautiful restoration of the theatre. So we did a picture book uh, production of a a play, which um, I didn't think was anything except for great fun before I did it. But then as I did it, uh, we're talking about Black Eyed Susan, 
out out of this fairly banal text came a a play that historically looked at returning militia to their homeland and the way they were treated, which of course goes across every uh, era that has ever existed. The idea of soldiers, sailors, latterly airmen coming back to a society who wanted them to do what they did, but doesn't value them for people anymore when they come back. And there, you know, there, there, the examples of how people have been very badly treated a legion, and that's what happens in Black Eyed Susan. So, uh, uh, even in a very traditional picture book production, uh, you got something extraordinary out of it. At the other end of the extreme, uh, we did um, a production of the hitherto unperformed uh, uh, play. The Massacre, which Inchbald wrote as her contribution to the debate about the French Revolution, which is a play, amongst other things, and it's only a short play, but it's a play about uh, well, genocide, I suppose, in, in its most uh, uh, inclusive terms. Um, it, uh, it lent itself completely to looking at the way that uh, different societies treated the issue of how to imprison, torture, get rid of, dis disembarrass themselves of, of people who weren't part of their, their central identity. And that, that felt like uh, we could do everything from Northern Ireland to um, uh, Rwanda. And so we did it in a modern dress production. Sorry, that's very... Uh, uh, badly expressed but at least i know what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah i think that i think colin's i think what colin achieved at berry was showing you that you can do so many different things with these plays um from stagings which at least officially feel quite um traditional in period costume indeed in the case of the, the black eyed susan production in 2007 as colin has said even working with that the kind of traditional perspectival scenery scene painting but um as as something like uh, the massacre uh, his production of the massacre showed you know doing that in modern dress as was the case um worked so well was so powerful and i think that's i mean i think to to, to take two other examples uh in 2019 the rsc did two plays um Thomas Otway's Tragedy, Venice Preserved, and John Vanbrugh's play, The Provoked Wife. Venice Preserved is a tragedy. The Provoked Wife is a comedy, a complex, troubling comedy. The Provoked Wife was, was done in period costume, uh, but it was done in a way which really brought out the, the complexity and ambivalence of its comedy. So that worked very well. Whilst uh, Venice Preserved was done in this kind of uh, 80s Blade Runner style aesthetic. And that also worked really well. And I think that's, that's what I would say in that, you know, play with, play with these plays. Don't assume that they need to be done with the big wigs and the big costumes. I think the danger is sometimes that, that it, it kind of becomes panto season automatically. The moment that actors put on these big wigs and, and, uh, uh, and costumes, they, they they kind of strut across the stage slightly differently, and sometimes that might be very useful. 
but I, I just think there's so much scope for doing, doing things differently. And, and that's one of the things that I would just say to any actor or director mm-hmm. which is, is just approach these plays exper- experimentally. Think about what you could, with, could do with them. You know, the, the possibilities are, are so vast. And they're robust, yeah. just like any other play yeah. uh, from, a good, from a good writer. You, you, you can take Shakespeare and do whatever you want with it, but actually think, think across the era, eras about plays that have been taken and, and reinterpreted for a different audience in a different way. There, there, there are many, many examples of that. And why, why should the 18th century be any different? You know, the, the, the great plays will lend themselves to it. Absolutely agree. I guess I find myself curious about, you know, there's there's such a delight in the sort of collapsing of the remove, right, between this far away, this thing that feels sort of temporally far away from us and right now and, and sort of saying, you know, we can do this in a way that makes it feel really immediate. But I guess, you know, Colin part of have the delight of having the the theater the regency theater at your disposal and i know like david with your work on spectacle and sort of restoring and reactivating not just the repertoire but the space i wonder what the possibilities are of that and of sort of like reimagining the spectacle as it was in a way that doesn't make it feel more removed yeah, I think the danger there is that you're in the realms of museum theatre. Uh, and I just, I think theatre is, it's live in lots of ways, okay? And that you, there is, we don't have an 18th century audience. So there's no point pretending that we have, that these, the plays need to work for a 21st century audience. And I think there are ways, for instance, I mean, to take the, the question in terms of space, to take the question of space, uh, and really Colin should be talking about this, but I think, I think I'm right in Colin in saying that if you stand uh, on the fore stage of the theatre at Bowes and Edmonds, right at the front of the fore stage, you are at the exact centre of the building. You know, you're, you're as far from the very back of, of the building as you are from the front of the building. So that this and, and and I almost everything I think that Colin did at, at Berry played with that the idea that if you're stood there on the four stage and of course in the 18th century and indeed the Regent in the Regency Theatre such as that at Berry St Edmunds you know that the stage hasn't retreated behind the proscenium arch yet as it will do in in the Victorian period uh, you are in a very particular and intimate relationship with spectators and that. Colin would always say in the, and again, I'm stealing your lines here, Colin, so do interrupt me. No, Colin, would always, Colin would always say in the rehearsal space, and I thought it was absolutely right, that to his actors, you know, you've got to, you know, always think about the audience as another character in a scene. You're always, always talking to them, always involving them in some ways. So, and, and, and that is an insight which is, at the one hand, historical, and on the other hand, kind of, ahistorical it, apl- it works now you know, it's it's a hugely important insight for how to make that space work and a hugely important insight for how to make plays work that were written in a period before we have Chekhov before we have Stanislavski etc etc in which an idea of what counts as natural is just very different so and then on the question of spectacle I think that I, th- I, I mean I don't think we need to be staging 
restoration or 18th century plays using the kind of scenic approaches that were used at the time. What I think we could do if you if we have the budget is to recognize how much these plays are that are visual and are thinking visually. And that can be done with lots of modern techniques, some of which might require a very large budget, some of which might require a lot of imagination and a small mm -hmm. budget. Yeah, completely, completely. Uh, let me go back to the architecture and its relationship to the repertoire because it's, it's central. The architecture of the building, as David said, places the actor right in the middle of the audience, well, right in the middle of the building, but as part of the audience, as a, as a member, if you like, of the audience. So that the, the, the illusion, if you like, is 360 degrees rather than 180 degrees. And the audience are complicit in everything that goes on. And that that grows from a tradition where the Shakespearean soliloquy is, is delivered in the hope that the audience will at least receive, receive the information slightly differently from the, the drama itself and in the best of worlds will respond to it. And th this, this has moved on in time and moved indoors and it becomes a, a real feature of all of these plays that you are asking the audience to be your friend, your confidant, your critic, your ally, whatever it is. And you want them to be part of the drama. So the, the reason I say that, to, uh, that, that thing to the actors about the audience being another member of the scene is that there is so much that you can talk to them about. And by addressing them personally, they feel involved. And there's a neat little trick, which I've yet to discover why this happens. It's all about psychology. If you talk directly to one person, everybody feels included. If you sort of make it general and look out over the top of people, nobody feels included. And so that the trick is always to look directly and to hold their gaze and to start a conversation with them. The best example we have of that now is in pantomime where if you talk to a member of the audience, everybody in the audience feels involved in that. They don't feel that they're dislocated from it. And there is something that goes on there. And these plays absolutely rely on that relationship. So here I'll trot out the little story about um, The London Merchant, which is a play by, um, what was he called? George Lillo. Thank you, George Lillo, which we did uh, later on, um, one of the last things we did big heavy duty tragedy uh, about all sorts of issues with an astonishing central female character of a courtesan called Millwood. And she seduces a young apprentice, George Barnwell. And after their first meeting, he has a conversation with the audience, which hitherto would have been called a soliloquy. I banned that word in my rehearsals simply because it means you're on your own. And I didn't want him to be on his own. I wanted him to be talking to his audience. And he was debating the, the pros and cons of either staying away from Millwood or going with her in, in, in some of the most uh, tightly written and effective poetry that, that that the play has got and during this play we did it actually in the round which was an experiment but it put him right next to a box in the circle 
we floored over the pit so he could go all the way up to the circle and talk to people in those boxes. And he settled on the first night or whichever night it was on one pair, a man and a woman sitting in this box. And he said to them in this very tight, beautiful poetry, effectively, should I stay or should I go? And the man responded and he said, yeah, go with her, go with her. And the woman said, don't you dare. And I just thought that was a brilliant vindication of the idea that you can you can involve your audience in uh, all sorts of things that will help you as an actor or as an, as a character determine your way through the play. I mean, obviously, you can't you can't divert yourself from the text, but it will give you a sense of how the audience is feeling and the way that you can flesh out your your motivations, your characterizations to to make it a richer experience for everybody. Oh, it's wonderful that that, <laughs> that that just, you have that perfect example of how that comes to life, how it engages people. And oh, we, we maybe should just cover how, if, if people haven't come across 18th century theatre before, however technologically advanced they're imagining it was, it was probably more so. It's very impressive. There's, they love water on stage, mm -hmm. performing dogs, bits of set coming down, bridges that collapse. They're really, you know, this is Andrew Lloyd Webber in 1790. <laughs> I mean, one, one of the uh, amazing things when you kind of delve back into the history of the practical application of all of this, which goes right back to the Baroque era and all of those amazing opera houses uh, in Europe, is that uh, again, returning to the theme of returning soldiery or, or, or the Navy, is lots and lots of sailors were employed in theatres when they came back uh, to pull ropes and to turn pulleys and to do things that, uh, that sailors were inevitably very good at because that's what they did on ships. Isn't it the fact also that we, we, we talk of a, a, you know, a crew? Yeah. The, the crew as in yeah. the kind of stage crew. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, I think one of the reasons that this period of theatre, as we discussed, has been forgotten or neglected, or indeed, in some ways, kind of consciously removed from our our cultural history, is because it's a period of theatre that that isn't just textual; mm -hmm. it is so visual, uh, and the kind of denigration of special effects and spectacle, I think, is is certainly part of Mm -hmm. why this period of theatre has been neglected and misunderstood. Um, and, and yet that's, it, it's so important. I mean, it, it, in lots of ways, we've, I've, I've already talked about how in this period of theatre, we see the racial and sexual and financial ideas and ideologies that, that shape our own moment. But this period of theatre is also the period that gives us ultimately the kind of blockbuster movie you know, there couldn't be Jurassic Park or Avengers Endgame without restoration in 18th century theatre and the kind of spectacular effects that they gave their audiences. But, you know, there was a, a real change in the way that, in what theatre was in this period that lots of people seem to have found quite troubling, but I find tremendously exciting. 
I sort of wish we'd all been unmuted for that moment when David was talking about the blockbusters because we were all giggling with delight at that mm. idea because absolutely that's the sort of thrills and um, and uh, horror and excitement that you get when you when you go to a movie theater. They're all present in in these plays in some ways. It's just such a wonderful conversation about the the mechanics of theater and its history and how those things kind of inform the, the actual staging now. Um, and kind of <laughs> drawing through, I think something that's just been so wonderful about this conversation as a whole. I would just love to ask both of you how you see practice and research in, in your work as a kind of whole theme of our, of our podcast. Do you see research and practice as, as opposite sides of the same coin, as one is is in service of the other can they get in one another's way sometimes I it's a a huge question that we're so we're so fascinated by we made a podcast about it that's a really gosh that's a that's a big question I feel we could go on for an hour here I would say I think they can certainly get in each other's way I mean I think there's always but I at least in my experience of working with Colin and with with other theatre makers I think that that slight sense of tension, that sense of difference is actually often quite productive. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want to be without it. I mean, the fact that we're not, that we're coming to similar or the same materials from different places is exactly what's what's interesting. And that might mean that sometimes there is disagreement about approaches. What I would say is that certainly if we're talking about this question of, well, how can how can we ensure that more restoration and 18th century plays are put on by commercial professional companies in Britain and indeed beyond in America as well? And I think the answer to that is going to have to involve both researchers and also theatre makers. Obviously it has to involve theatre makers, but I think that, you know, the, the people who are researching and reading and teaching these plays need to find ways to get word out about them, quite frankly, you know, to show those people who have the skills, the talent and the resources to put on these plays, to show them that these plays exist and that they are great and that they, they, they would be brilliant for actors, that they would be brilliant for, for contemporary audiences as well. So I think that, in part, that is where I feel responsibility as a researcher. And I think my my colleagues in the R18 Collective, Misty Anderson, Daniel O'Quinn, Tracy Davis, Christina Straub, Lisa Freeman, would all agree. I think they would they are uh, in agreement that we need to find ways to get the word out. And then beyond that, I, I mean, really, it is about then us learning, as I've already said, in that if we believe that these plays kind of are a reservoir of embodied knowledge, then the only way to unlock that is to perform them. And so we're not going to, there's certain things that we will not learn as researchers unless we work with practitioners. Do you agree with that, Colin? Yeah, completely, completely. I don't think there's any tension between research and uh, uh, practical work. I think the tension is between purism and pragmatism uh, the, the the people who are purists although i'm not sure quite what that means uh, uh, 
tend to say you can't do it like that when there's no good reason for doing it, uh, when there's no good reason for not doing it like that, other than a, a kind of misplaced belief that aspic is the place for these things. Uh, and there are people like that, and uh, they're, they're entirely entitled to their own view and their own, yes, their own view. I don't believe that's the way to do it. I, I believe that research should inform practice and practice should return to research a degree of discovery. And there are plenty of brilliant plays out there. But it's interesting, Helen, that you, you talked about um, uh, Jack Absolute Flies Again, uh, which is a reinterpretation of, uh, of She Stoops. Um, the rivals, just, of the rivals. Uh, sorry, of the rivals. I just wish they'd chosen another play, yeah. you know, which which would have uh, have brought that play forwards a bit without going. Here's a lovely 18th century drama. I also think, Colin. I was I was thinking as you were talking, and I I just felt like we should address this at some point on the podcast. And as you say, the kind of extant canon of that time period is really a few plays by Sheridan and one play by Oliver Goldsmith. But as your restoring the repertoire proved there are so many plays by women in that period. It's a there fantastic. Are. We talked about Elizabeth Inchbold several times. We've mentioned Susanna Sontlivre. Um, we, Amanda and I, have worked with both of you on um, Hannah Cowley uh, short play. There's there's such good work by women in that period, and it doesn't get performed. And I think we should at least just note that Colin's been doing amazing work getting that onto stages. Yeah, there's add, lots of it. There's lots of it. We, we could add Afra Ben, yeah. Mary Picks, yeah. Delera V.A. Manley. I'm going to be missing uh, Catherine Trotter. Uh, Eliza Haywood. Eli- sorry, of course, Eliza Haywood. Yeah, Kitty Clive. K- Kitty Clive. We could, we, we could go on, absolutely. There are, my, my dream is that one of the, the major rep theatres in London does a season of new plays by 18th century women mm-hmm. because they are new plays. Mm. I mean, this is how they ought to be approached. They, these are, these are new plays that have never been seen by, they've not been seen by audiences for hundreds of years that speak to us in really powerful ways now. And so that I think they ought to be marketed as new plays by that just happened to be written by women who lived 300 years ago. Well, it sounds like we have our, you know, next couple of seasons laid out for us. <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much for your for your work and your further work that we'll get to see and read. And um, it's been a delight talking to both of you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having us. This has been Practice Makes, the Oxford Reimagining Performance Podcast with Helen Dallas and Madeleine Sadenberg. Thanks for listening.